0: Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house, your weekend wake up tradition. I talk to the trees, stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Second Saturday of the month, we have Agrescaping joining us in studio. Founder Justin Ronners here. If you'd like to join the conversation, 1-888-767-4348. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. Text questions can be sent to four one one nine two three, or you can email us at info at rosie on If you have a question, uh, question on insect uh, or plant identification, you can snap a picture and email us there tree disease is kind of our topic of uh, the week. It doesn't seem like uh, anything other than drought is a disease right now.
1: Yeah, that's probably our top disease right now. Yeah, you got it. It's, uh, it's a little bit rough on a lot of the trees, and that's been probably 95% of my answers to people's tree questions uh, the last few weeks has been, uh, it's just really hot out there, and there's a lot of drought, and And I know a lot of people have been losing arms off of their saguaro cactuses. If you're one of those, you know, I really feel for you because that's, you know, 100 years of arm growth might have been dropped in the last couple weeks. And it has everything to do with just the extreme heat we've had. And watering it won't really fix it. So uh, many have found that even watering it actually caused the drop to happen a little bit faster. So it's it's a shock to these plants that's been happening. It is abnormal, but most of our good desert-adapted trees definitely can bounce back from this. But they may be dropping a lot of leaves, uh, getting some discoloration, dropping the leaves and creating their own little mulch beneath themselves. So I wouldn't recommend getting rid of all that mulch that's dropping because what it's trying to do is preserve what remaining moisture is there and make it a little more consistent for itself. And so it's, uh, you know, trees pretty good at taking care of themselves. I don't know if you realize that forests continue to grow without your help so it's it's one of those things my son pointed out to me years ago you know when we were hiking off the backside of Timpanogos up in Utah uh, after he'd been spending the whole summer watering our trees and watering our plants by hand and certain new things that we'd planted he says well who's watering all this Uh, and the reality is uh, native stuff is is pretty well adapted to what's going on but it will change and it will look different than what you expected
0: just might be a little a little dreary the next couple weeks
1: yeah it might be and obviously doing some more consistent watering some good deep watering on a consistent basis still highly recommended um, ambient humidity creating a little bit of ambient humidity i've seen people actually put out little kitty pools fill them full of water and put a little solar powered bu- bubbler just to create a little bit more ambient humidity we're right now we're about Almost twenty percent lower than normal in our our humidity rate for this time of year. A humidifier year. for the tree. There you go. That's the, it. Tree humidifiers. Oh, hey. Yeah, it's a, it's a new product we're coming out with. No, it's a, but it's something you can create for your trees and create that ambient that ambient humidity for for some of the bases of these trees. Help them hold their leaves a little bit longer because that's what's happening. They'll they'll get really dry around the base of the leaf points and their connection points, and then it just drops the leaf. And
0: I've, I've Gary kind of had mentioned it to a tree humidifier. So it's a little kiddie pool. Yep. And you put a solar fan
1: in it. Well, it's not so much a fan. It's just a solar bubbler. So it's it, literally like a solar bubbler. fountain. Sometimes it's a floating solar fountain. They'll put just little solar floating pe- fountain. Or, yeah, it kind of sits in the middle of that pool, and it just... Helps recirculate the water, bubbles around. It keeps it from getting mosquitoes in it, too, because people are often concerned about that. you got to have a little bit of moving water, and and mosquitoes don't typically hang out in moving water at all. And so that little ripple make a big difference, and then it creates the humidity. Interesting. And have you seen that to be
0: effective, or is it just makes you feel good that— you're doing something. Well, it's
1: definitely effective at helping hold on more leaf for, for a lot of these trees. That little bit of extra humidity that you kind of put it underneath the tree canopy. Uh, a lot of people that are in our tropical world, you know, we got a lot of desert tropical people. And so for avocados, that's, that's actually a key component to helping avocados really survive here in the desert. Uh, Most people put in a full water feature and they just kind of have a nice little pond there that, you know, rain catchment. So it's a combination of rain catchment and water feature. Those are really cool features that you can add to your gardens and utilize what rain we do get, which not too many of us are convinced we get. So, (laughs) you know, we had a
0: record-breaking wet winter and we've got a
1: record-breaking dry summer, (laughs) you
0: know, the pendulum
1: swings. Well, and even during this time, though, I mean, there's some trees that are just loving it right now. One is actually our tree of the month. Uh, it's that um, Texas olive. I mean, it is a very desert-adapted type tree. It, it is native to the to the southwest, more so in Texas, obviously, due, due to the name. But uh, that particular tree right now, many of you might have it. You'll see a lot of flowers on it still and a lot of fruit, a lot of these shiny little green olive fruits that are on the on the plant right now that might be dropping to the ground and starting to rot but uh it's it's a beautiful little sub canopy kind of tree that uh it it adds a lot of green it's evergreen almost 100 percent evergreen beautiful white paper flowers they call it one of the most female trees of the desert so it's a it's a feminine type look and it's it's a beautiful little tree and it's olive but there's no olives on it i don't well, the fruit, they call it an olive, and you can eat it. I wouldn't recommend eating it in uh, in large quantities. Uh, a lot of Native Americans down in, in uh, I, I guess would be West Texas, they they would actually make a jam out of it or a jelly, and it's actually really good, and, and it's very good and, and nutritious. So, But it's something that raw, not as easy to eat. Uh, it's got a a sweet flavor, but got a little bitter aftertaste on it. And that's probably why everybody's not out there just snacking on these things. So, does the fruit look like an olive? Does it, I mean, why do they, why do they call it an olive? It, it kind of looks like an olive, but it's got a little paper covering to it, almost a little, little paper kind of, almost um, like a tomatillo, kind of have a little husk around it. And then it's got this bright, shiny, you know, pale green with a little more on the pale side. Just before they fall off, that's when they taste the best. But again, in moderation, it's got a semi-toxicity and it. You can taste it in the little back-end bitterness. Um, it's it's not going to hurt you. It might make you a little dizzy if you, if you ate a bunch of it. But, you know, if you took fresh olives, like regular olives off of a tree and, and ate even five of them, you'd be more than dizzy. You'd be probably throwing up on the sideline there. So just remember, anything that has the name olive to it usually means it is and does have an edible quality. However, it may need some treatment in order to make it such. Oh,
0: the process of an olive has to go through coming off the tree before it gets into the jar into your the grocery store into your home is it's it's an extensive process. It is.
1: I I can't even. I don't even know what happened to have someone arrive at the conclusion they could eat them. (laughs) It it baffles me to this day. But it's ancient, and it's uh, you know the olive oil is easier. You know that's probably the easiest way, and that was the first way that people ate olives was just crushing it down and using the oil.
0: Now, that is a very pretty tree, the, the Texas olive. How big of a space do I need to plan for?
1: Well, you can keep them pretty small. They're they're nice. They can turn into a nice little multi-trunk, almost more of a bush-like little tree, more of a specimen type or a, just a, an accent tree. I wouldn't use it as a shade tree. 15 feet is about as high as you see them around here. They can get up to about 20 feet, but it's rare. And when they do get up that tall, uh, most people end up trimming the base of it, thinking that that'll help increase the canopy. But The the Texas olive doesn't react that way. It starts thinning itself out. So the best look is actually keeping it more like a bush and keeping it kind of round. It it has a nice round habit. You don't really have to trim it much ever. I mean, it it holds its shape really well. And, um, yeah, it kind of does its thing. And one of the things that's on here is it
0: says one of it's uh, susceptible to is Texas root rot. Now, yeah. I know you, before the broadcast started, you'd said, you know, there's about seven diseases we really have to work with. And kind of joked that drought's the only one that we have, but <laughs> there's about seven we have to worry about.
1: Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about a lot of those as we go through the through things today. I mean, unless you got other questions. I mean, again, anybody on here right now, it's got a specific question about what's going on in their garden right now and how they might be helped. We can help, and we'd be happy to help. So, But in inside of that, the Texas root rot, that's something that we get a lot even around here. Um, somewhat, it's, it's all fungal disease, and it's down in the roots of the trees if they don't get good enough drainage. And there are areas of Arizona that have such bad clay and caliche layers that the water literally, if it gets into there, and then it sits for a long period of time with all this extreme heat, it increases the level of that fungal growth and other bacterial growth that then starts rotting the roots. And what it looks like above the surface on your tree is that rather than your leaves wilting, they, they they basically just, they they wither. They they kind of shrink up. They get all wrinkly and stuff rather than just drooping down. If they droop down, it's usually a sign that I'm, hey, I'm low on water. But if it starts kind of really crinkling up and withering away and, and still holding it, its color, it, it could be a root rot issue. And it's a systemic thing, so the whole entire tree could likely be affected by it all at once. Whereas, you know, when you low on water, maybe part of the tree's wilting a little, the other part's fine, you know, one part that's more in the sun... But if if it's getting root rot, every leaf on the entire tree is going to be affected, and it could easily kill the entire tree. And is there a cure for that? Not. It's not very easily re- reversible. It, it's um, uh, one way. It's you. You got to drill holes through whatever hard pan you've got, so water can then leach through, and it could kind of drain through. Um, but for the most part, it's that's that's about one of the only things you can really do if you start getting that root rot. You can try putting some type of hydrogen peroxide solutions into the soil and hope that that can help. Um, We've seen people try uh, that that's been semi-effective is using Epsom salts to try to soak some of the excess water away or reduce the effect that that excess water might have on the tree, but then it can also create some other issues. So it's, um, it's a tough one. Uh, I mean, and it can, it can attack even some of the strongest trees. A lot of these live oaks can get root rot, that Texas root rot and cause some major problems. So
0: this is one that's better handled preventatively. Correct. Manage your tree so you don't ever get the Texas root rot.
1: 100%. And that's your easiest method against any Arizona disease is preventative care. Just good, proper care, good drainage on your soil, proper watering feeding ones that need it do you ever do a soil test before you plant a tree we have especially people that are suspect have bought a new property and they saw in the satellite images from previous years that they might have had a lot of cars you know all stacked in a certain part of their that's a good a good indicator you should probably test your soil before you start planting in it um i mean we've had even some clients that they've told us that you know we've planted a tree every year in the same spot and it keeps dying I was like, yeah, it's probably good at, it could indicator you probably had a your your tree has been testing it for you saying it's not good for me. Uh it, it and so we let's let's get a get a real test, get a core test.
0: I guess you know that trees are the
1: best networkers, right? That's because they're always ready to branch out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Network time. Hopefully, your garden is networking together too. You got a lot of collaborative plants, so they're not competing against each other but actually benefiting each other. It's always a good thing.
0: We're branching out on tree diseases today. We covered the Texas root rot. Before we get to our next one, we've got a texture that says, I have a 25 uh, foot tall pine tree, and I am looking for watering advice. How often, how long? You know, I guess frequency and volume is, is what we're looking for here.
1: So if you've got a 25-foot tall uh, pine tree, that means it's got a pretty pretty deep root system already. And usually it's got a massive <clears throat> tap root. And so watering those pine trees very important, especially this time of year when we have some extended droughts. Uh, that's, that's very important because a lot of what they tap into is groundwater. Um, many of us in the valley have groundwater about 12 feet deep. There's a little bit, a little bit of moisture down there. And if that starts drying up at all, then that tree has some major issues. And so what we like to look at at pine trees is we want to slow water so it never actually pools, but we want it to water all like pretty much all night. So we want just enough so it's not pooling and it should be able to seep through that soil. Now, in order to test if I'm getting good depth, you want it at least three feet deep every time you water, probably no more than once a week. But um, this time of year, we'll do an overnight watering about twice a month on pine trees. You know, even just slow drip with a with a hose going on it. Um, we don't recommend making a swale for it. You really just need it st- needs to go slow enough and long enough to get down about that same depth as your uh, tree is tall, in order for that tree to really be happy.
0: And whenever I heard pine growing up, I always thought said- that's that's a mountain tree. That's a mountain tree. <laughs> what are you trying to do? put a pine in the desert? But there are desert pines. You've got the Afghan yep. pine. Uh, got the Mondale pine. Mon, uh, alderica. Alderica's, yep. The, um, what's this one on Central? It's my favorite one. Aleppo.
1: Aleppo pine, yeah. Now, I
0: know those have some serious diseases that have caught up with them, you know, 50, 60 years into the making right now. But something about those Aleppo pines on an irrigated lot on a row you know it's just i don't know they did horse properties like that for years yeah in arizona you have an irrigated lot or a row of aleppo pines and you have a big old pasture behind it i just i loved that look
1: yeah and if you're going to be putting them in i'd highly recommend making sure you got some good space between that tree and uh the nearest block wall or house because they do they're they have a tendency to heave up a bit and they do lift and those root systems actually got a client property we were at this morning and he's, he has an old stump from a massive pine tree. And it obviously had, it shifted their wall just a, t- a bit in a – And it's just a massive root ball, really hard to deal with. You have to just chop it from the top, burn it, (laughs) and do whatever you can. Which
0: pine does best in our climate? Uh, Desert floor
1: climate. (laughs) Afghan and the Mondale uh, have been some of our best ones long-term. Mondale, not so so many people are familiar with that one, but that one tends to do real well. Some of the outlying cities and stuff, you'll actually find large, huge Mondale pines that have been around for quite a long time. But the Afghan is is more popular for yeah more popular has more of the the traditional pine tree kind of look the mondale can actually get multi-branching and be more almost a little more uh multi-branch tree looking as it grows
0: all right well let's hit the next disease before a
1: break well with uh, a lot of things there's really five different categories of the diseases you want to be checking out for so first ones are foliage diseases where you got issues on the leaves themselves um, spots, uh, maybe a, a powdery, we're not going to have much of this because like a powdery mildew kind of issue. That's not so much that happens when it's really dry. That's more when it's wet. Uh, stem and trunk decay, the things you want to check at the base of your trees, uh, be able to look around the base. Make sure there's not a lot of stuff growing around the bark point. So there's your root crown and then there's the bark and you don't want a lot of stuff mounted up against that tree. Uh, I know a lot of people coming from uh, East Coast, or, uh, you know, central United States moving here, they do uh, the volcano mulching. That is a definite no no here in Arizona. I wouldn't even recommend it over there, actually. But uh, it's uh, it, when you get too much stuff up near the base of the tree, it actually can cause some rot right at the cambium layer, which can kill the entire tree, similar to what a root rot would do, but it does it at the cambium layer at that transition between the roots and the bark, and so, or uh, yeah, the bark of the tree, that, that part. So you want to be watching out for that stem and trunk type decay. Another type, so number three, is cankers, which are going to look kind of bulbous little growths on the sides of the tree. That can either be caused by either insects or they can be caused by fungal infections due to improper pruning or some damage to the tree that the fungus can get into. Um, And usually funguses are only transferable if there's a fungus on something else and then something is spray watered and then it basically bounces the spores over to the next tree or plant. And so uh, many times we'll find these fungal infections will be coming from nurseries that aren't paying well enough attention. They don't have enough airspace between the trees before you purchase them. And so it's coming in uh, from that. And then if you're spray watering, trying to spray water trees, which I don't recommend spraying the leaves of the trees with your regular water, you want to just water the roots. That's where they need the water. The leaf doesn't need the water as much. If you're foliar feeding, you just want to make sure that you're very very conscious of not letting the spray bounce off one leaf and go to a neighboring tree if you're doing foliar feeding. Um, and if you want to know more about foliar feeding, I highly recommend jumping into any of our classes on agriscaping.com. Learn more about that so that you know what you're doing jumping into the next uh, season of growth.
0: <clears throat> and your foliar feeding, that's... <clears throat> You're not putting fertilizer around the base on the ground like we're all pretty familiar with. This is spraying it on the leaf itself.
1: Yep, special nutrients that you're putting into that tree. We can talk more after the break.
0: Hundred and forty four days according to
1: reports, but I have seen rain. <laughs> well hopefully some of you got a little bit of rain this week. There were a couple of downpours in a couple of spaces that uh, at least closed down some job sites for us. So, you know, we knew there was enough to make the the ground like pudding, so that was that was something.
0: <laughs> Join the conversation on one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. Text questions, 411923, or you can email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. If you'd like to snap a picture and need a little help with plant or insect identification, you can email us there. We're talking about uh, tree diseases. We've covered the uh, Texas root rot. Uh, we've covered the, <clears throat> you kind of branched it into a category the foliar and then the Cambrian. And then you said there's five different categories. I don't think we hit all five yet.
1: Yeah, so let's talk, go, go back through them. So we got the foliar diseases, which is really kind of discoloration of your leaves, and then you leaf oriented diseases. Then you got your stem and trunk, which is all about that cambium layer. Then you got the cankers, which are the bulbous parts, and then there's what's a bulbous part? Well, it, it's like a growth. So if it, you, you look at the tree, and the the bark of that tree should not be nice and smooth, kind of growing up, and then it goes out to your branches. And usually at the junction points where the branch grows out, there might be some some clumps, just clumps of things. And which warts? There you go. <laughs> it's got some warts on the tree, and those are typically cankers. And there's usually two types of the cankers. One is an insect type where an insect is actually bored in and created a little bit of a nest underneath the layer between the cambium or in the cambium layer between the the core of the tree and the outer outer bark and then it it kind of grows and festers around it and creates this hard kind of structure around it and and that can be problematic. The bigger problem is usually when that when the eggs then um, grow out and then they they eat through the cambium layer of the tree and that's obviously the biggest problem with those types of cankers but then the other type is where a fungus can kind of get underneath that cambium layer usually a crack in the bark or damage to the tree and then what it'll do is that fungus will get inside of there and then it just continues to weep and so it'll like there'll be a more of a crystalline kind of bulb that kind of starts forming usually we find the cankers on a lot of the fruit trees when it's had excessive dryness, get some cracking, fungus will kind of get in there, get blown in with all the desert winds. And then it'll cause a little bit of an infection that's always kind of seeping. And then it'll grow a little bit of sap, and then the sap will dry, and then it'll grow more sap through it, and it just creates these chunks. But what that'll do is that that canker, that fungus, actually grows through uh, along the line of that tree, how it grows along that branch, and it creates more seepage coming through that. And uh, even on mesquite trees, you might see some of these. It's more of a bacterial-type infec- infection where they drip and sap all the time. It's treatable but usually doesn't kill the entire tree. With the fruit trees, some of the cankers can get so bad it'll kill the entire branch of the tree or kill the entire tree as well if it's low enough to start point. Um, but those kind of things you just want to watch out for. And make sure you get some uh, some good uh, some good remediation on those types of things. The, the last two ones are stem rusts, which is um, – often swollen branches more towards the edges of the, of the tree. Uh, And then the last one's more about the root diseases, which we were talking about, like the, the root rots and things that will, you'll see the effect of it on the leaves. You won't really see it on the root.
0: Now a fruit tree is one of my favorite things to plant because it's one of the least amount of maintenance items you can have in a landscape or garden. Uh, But it is shorter lived than a lot of our natives or, Uh, You know, desert adapted. So if you're planting your fruit tree or you're planting it for fruit production, most of them take a couple years to get into a good production. And when you've got uh, a good yield, you've got to watch how, especially like on peaches, you've got to thin the
1: tree really good unless you like – (coughs) <coughs> great peaches <laughs> yeah there you go and the great peaches are going to end up with more pit than fruit so you, that's one of the keys you know thinning them out got to thin them out <coughs> so you it, you've got to plan it
0: you know they only say about 20 to 25 years on some peaches I know you can get longer life out of them but if it takes five years to get it going you know about that 15 between that 15 and 20 year you've got to plant another one so that it comes into production by the the time this older one is ready to retire.
1: That sounds about right. And with plum trees, it's even less. You're usually about six to eight years is on average, the length of time that you got on most of the plum trees. Uh, even even the ones that are more adapted to here, they just, they don't last as long and, and be productive at the same time. Um, but your citrus trees, those are long standing ones. Your date palms, obviously those can last a really long time and you can still get a lot of production out of those as well. Um, and, and if you consider a mesquite tree, a fruiting tree, which I certainly do, <laughs> that's another good one that'll last a really long time for you and get you, get some, get you, get you some good food for you, your family, and, and even your neighbor's goats, if, if you got them. So <laughs> feed them, if you got them <clears throat> switching off of
0: trees, let's hit lawn a little bit because okay. we're coming up to that transition period in the next couple of weeks that people need to start planning for if you're doing the summer and the winter lawn. Now, you know, Jay always says... Forget the summer lawn. You're not out there anyway. You know, you, 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 if you want a lawn, focus on your winter lawn.
1: Yeah, the winter lawn is, is the most beautiful lawn that you can create here in Arizona. It's the darkest green. It's the luscious, you know, kind of texture. It's the softest on your feet. I mean, That's what the
0: kids are like. Is it itchy grass season or, or soft grass season? There you go.
1: Yeah, it's like I remember it's like soccer season in the summer. I'm always itchy rolling around in it and kind of, you know, with the Bermudas, but uh, – the winter winter season, winter soccer season, oh, that's just nice, good old grass stains. You know, that's that's the best grass stains you can get. It's soft. <laughs> and when it, when it comes to that, I would highly recommend making sure you get a perennial rye if you're using a rye, rather than your more what they call an annual rye. So it's a thinner blade. It conserves water a lot more, and so it takes a lot less water. It lasts longer. It grows less quick, meaning it, it doesn't grow as tall. So you get a... A basic rye you're going to end up with very broad leaves it's it's it is very soft it grows very fast but you have to mow it a lot more and it uses a lot more water and so if you're into conserving water look more into the direction of the perennial rise the round what they call a round leaf kind of perennial rye uh, and those are much much more longer lasting and they adapt better with your bermuda if you want the bermuda to come back because some people they let the they, they, they get the rye growing a little too long into the season, and then Bermuda doesn't even really come back. And they got spotty Bermuda all through the summer months. And that's problematic. And it usually has to do with maybe using the wrong type of rye seed or your watering was just too high during the winter months. And so it really decayed uh, some of your Bermuda. And some might not believe that we can kill Bermuda, but there's ways to do it. Uh, and that's one way to kind of kill some of that back, especially the better, tur- the tiffs. And the better the uh, Bermudas and hybrids that uh, actually work pretty well and are more desert adapted. And we'll get to killing Bermuda in a minute because <laughs> there is
0: out here in the median and in, in this driveway back here, they're trying to do it. And I just I've been watching them, and I'm like, you know, I, I feel bad for the guys out there because I'm like, you're it's it's not the the way it, it, it's going to work, but. When do we plant? Because I remember it seemed like winter grasses used to start in September, but yeah. it doesn't seem like you know it, it's not even until October that we're even planting ours now. Now I buy it early because sometimes if you wait that long uh, for the volume that we want for our coverage, uh, it can start to get scarce by that late, but it, definitely. It seems like every time I've planted before Halloween, uh, I end up just planting again.
1: Well, we've got some very helpful uh, vendors that, you know, they're already starting to call us right now and saying, hey, make sure you get all your seed that you need ordered, especially for the better uh, the better seed. Uh, that's the stuff that's going to go quickest. And so your perennial type rise, that's going to go fast. And if you're late getting in, I mean, you, you want to have all your seed before even September starts. That's the way we look at it. Making sure that you're prepped and ready for that. Uh, any overlayment that you may need to do. Any prep work. So doing... Uh, we get into September. That's kind of where we start prepping for it. And by the end of September, that's when we really start growing it and seeding that stuff in. We we try to get it at the tail end of the monsoon season, whenever that shows up. Um, <laughs> but we, we want to get to the tail end so we don't get the seed down and then get a flooding rain that then throws all the seed to one corner of the property. And then it only grows in that section. So that's part of the that's trick. That's a pretty section though. <laughs> it's gonna be a pretty little section over there. All in one nice corner and very thick, so dense it can't even survive itself very well. You know, so that's that's one of the issues that you have with overseeding, especially if you scalp too low. We try to keep our our grass, we don't want to scalp it down too low unless we've got an undulation issue on the grasses where we need to level it back out. So now's a good time to start looking at re-leveling part of your grasses or recontouring. That's what we usually do before. The winter grass because then it will look the best soonest and then give some time for the the underlaying Bermudas to grow back and fill in. What do you like to level with? I've got a few, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, dog
0: pots. Dog pots. (laughs) So
1: what we we like to do is actually do a little bit of um, aeration. So we'll do some plug first to try to get some area around it. We'll kind of scrape that away. But sand is literally the easiest, just some good, coarse, cheap sand as a as a fill-in especially if you're using a bermuda or tiffs and and stuff that'll all grow back in through that sand increases the drainage gives you a little bit long-term mineral um, because anything else doesn't settle very well Uh, and then the other trick is is making sure that the dog's not over there in that area (laughs) until it all grows back in and thickens up well i've got chicken wire that i
0: put over the top of it then i like (laughs) nail the chicken wire in and Hope that the lawnmower blade is high enough it doesn't catch it when it comes over the top. There you go.
1: Well, that's another way to do it. And then over time, if you don't get the galvanized chicken wire, it'll just break down and add some iron into your your soil. Dissolve
0: right into it, yes.
1: Yeah, so that's a good way to do it. You're getting smart there, Romy.
0: You're getting smart. Got to outsmart the (laughs) dog. Not easy. Now, when you were talking uh, on the lawn transition thing and, and the Bermuda, you don't necessarily need to have a bermuda and, and you don't know we mentioned that i, I kind of mentioned that earlier when you said you know you're not you want to make sure your ride doesn't you know you're not planning it too early or going too late we try and make it last as long as we can and don't really worry about the bermuda in the middle and, Well, and and killing off the bermuda is you can't just do it by by not watering it. it it's going to live. It, it's like the cockroach of the plant world.
1: Yeah. And for those that don't know Bermuda yet, or especially this Arizona Bermuda, if you're in a, an older neighborhood, that's, uh, you know, before the, the, the 2010s, I'd say anything older than build at the 2010s, it's likely got what we call some dinosaur Bermuda. I mean, some varieties of Bermuda that um, might've been here when the dinosaurs were here and they've got stolons that go down these roots that'll go down 18 inches. And they'll be as thick as a pencil down under there. And uh, so you think you've burned it off by killing off everything on the top. But then two years later, it just comes back with a vengeance. Because those deep, deep roots have finally gotten their way back up. And they're going to grow right into whatever garden you thought you wanted. Have you ever seen a landscape cloth
0: that Bermuda hasn't penetrated over the course of time.
1: Yeah, landscape cloth isn't my isn't your best approach. What you got to do in order to really get rid of the Bermuda effectively if you're going to grow above it is you're going to have to really get that underwriting stuff. Either you got to dig it all out and we've seen people do that and literally scrape 18 inches of soil out and then put all new soil back in. That's not very cost-effective, not very economical either, because you try to find a, a dump that'll take uh, grass-ridden uh, soil right now. It's <laughs> it's not easy. There's hardly anybody that's going to even touch it, and I won't tell you who, because I don't want everybody to start going there <laughs> right now until we can find some better options. So it's it's some of those things. It's We like to try to find ways to get it to decay under the soil and get that last root to actually die off. Uh, so we use organic methods, and we'll actually layer stuff. We'll actually put in some... Beneficial bacteria that eat the carbohydrate roots, and we'll put layers of cardboard, actually forcing it so that the plant will try to grow back up through it. But then it hits the cardboard layer, and then it, it grows itself out, and we have those beneficial bacteria that help break down all that uh, that that remaining root until it it's it's basically worked itself out. It's died off. So it's and tricky. what
0: they're doing in this median over here, it's uh, pine tree uh, palm trees. And it, a Bermuda lawn in the middle. Well, they just scraped the Bermuda lawn. I mean, even around the base of the palm trees, it's still growing. Oh wow! And they're trying even, to get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even take uh, any dirt off. I mean, you're talking about going down 18 inches. They just went down to dirt level, and then they went back with landscape cloth, and then they put rock on top of it. And I feel bad because like I said they've been working on it for a couple weeks, and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's intentional or they're like, uh. You know, if we do it this way,
1: we know we'll get this job back in three years. <laughs> oh, there you go. we're
0: going to have to be back out here fixing this. That's
1: going to be closer than <laughs> three years. That's more of a six-month time frame. Sounds like their approach right there. This is Rick Thompson from Thompson's Drywall Services. You're listening to Rosie on the House. Yeah.
0: Let's bring Donna into the conversation. Let's talk to Justin at one That's one triple eight. rosie for you. Good morning, Donna. How may we help you?
2: Hi. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Um, I have some tropical plants. I believe one of them is a Monstera, and the other might be a white bird of paradise. But I have them on my patio. They're in nice big pots. Um, But a lot of the leaves have been burned in July. They're in the shade, but they're just they just been Really killed off. So I'm trying to find out. What can I do? Do I trim off? You know the burnt ones so that uh, there is some growth coming from uh, You know some new growth coming on but a lot of my leaves have died. I'm just trying to think can I um, What can I do?
1: Well, it, when you're talking about it, they're in the shade all the time, so there's no part of the tree or the plant or the pot that's in the sun at all?
2: No. Okay. I, I kind of moved them because it was so hot and they were getting burned.
1: Yeah, and that was a good move on your part. So what, what I'd recommend, I mean, still having water, a lot of these in pots, these tropicals, we, we're watering literally twice a day. So we're doing early morning and we're doing like another little top off about three a, three a, 3 p.m., uh, especially for those that aren't in the in the direct sun, it's a good idea to. As long as they're draining well, they'll be fine. But it sounds like what's happening is that the the leaves that were on during the spring grew in the spring. Now they're being affected by all the arid arid dry air that we've been having, and so that it sounds like is it is it the tips that are mostly burning off on those? Um, well, no.
2: I mean, at this point, they're almost. I I guess so, but it's almost affecting the whole leaf now at this
1: point. Yeah, so what I'd do is you can trim off that dead part of the leaf, uh, but I'd leave a little bit of dead, about an inch worth of dead, so there's still a little bit of that insulated buffer for that part and allow those new leaves to continue to grow. Um, You can even feed them a little bit right now. Uh, They might have already exhausted all their their regular feed, uh, but I would recommend doing more of a liquid-type feed. Uh, and and keeping it pretty diluted. So usually this time of year, when we get a lot of heat, we want more of a diluted recipe for our liquid feeds for a lot of those tropical plants, down to about five percent if you're putting it in a pot, down to one percent if you're spraying it on the leaf itself. And so it's it's a way to get some nutrient in it to help offset some of that, and so that the new leaves coming out are actually going to be much more healthier, more adapted to the heat that we're experiencing. The ones that are likely dying off, just we're growing it a much more. Uh, <laughs> temperate climate, and so they're just not ready. None of the cells inside those leaves can can handle the type of heat and, and dryness we've been experiencing.
2: Okay, and when you say uh, trim them, I'm trimming them all the way down to the base and leaving like an inch. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, and then you can let the rest of it okay. grow back. I mean, it's more of a, an, aesthetics, an aesthetic thing right now. It's not providing any real value to the plant since it's not in the sun. If it was out in the sun, I might recommend different and leaving some of the leaf there just to ensure that it's providing some shade to the plant. But since these are more of your shade-adapted uh, tropicals, you can just trim that whole part off.
0: We appreciate the call. You can also go to com, and you'll have a host of online classes that you could also dive into deeper. But yep. talk to me about uh, the botanical gardens out there, the Queen <laughs> Creek Botanical Gardens. You'll have a lot and development.
1: A lot of amenities still coming on, on the, the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens. We're hoping for a, a spring open. That's kind of where we're at right now. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to start opening back up some some great events. We did uh, the Farm to Fork. Uh, we're going to start those back up at the residential re- research facility that's just nearby the, the Queen Creek Botanical Garden site. And a couple other beautiful backyard gardens that we've been helping cultivate over the last year or so. Um, So if you're interested in that, I'd highly recommend just checking us out. I mean, going to agriscaping.com, being a part of our newsletter. You'll get our updates on what's going on in the the valley and about the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens as well. So if you're interested in these farm-to-fork dinners coming up here in October through the winter months, uh, be on that list because those things sell out every time within a week. So you want to get on. And you say amenities. I mean, I've seen pictures. There's some serious construction going on. There's some serious construction. A lot of great activities, a lot of family. I mean, it's definitely being geared towards the whole family, being able to come out and have some fun out there and uh, be entertained in a beautiful agritainment environment, um, even axe throwing and a uh, lot of lot of fun stuff, uh, some electric go-karts. I mean, there's a lot of cool little things that they can drive through, some of the gardens and things as well. It's it's a great, I great place. I can't wait,
2: Justin. It's, <laughs> it's just charming. Hey, and sign up for Justin's newsletter too. Great tips every week for your yard, garden. <laughs> At what? Tell us, Justin. It's at agerscaping. <laughs> Just go to
1: com and you can sign up for the newsletter right there, com.